0: One, two, three, four! Welcome to Convergence with Oladeji Tiamu. So today we have a very special edition. So much so that we are going to the beautiful tropical country of Gambia, in West Africa, to speak with Dr. Baba Jalo, who is a preeminent figure in Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. He has thought extensively about how to design Truth Commissions, and currently he is the Executive Secretary of Gambia's Truth Reconciliation and Reparations Commission colloquially referred to as the TRRC, which we'll be referring to frequently throughout this episode. Since there are a handful of cities in the US exploring the use of truth commissions in response to systemic racism, I couldn't help myself to use this as an opportunity to chat with Dr. Jallo, and he has so many intriguing ideas to explore, especially on the role technology can play in promoting reconciliation between different communities. In addition to his work with Truth Commissions, Dr. Jallo has been a professor of African history at multiple U.S. universities and is a prolific writer as an author of several books on democracy, women's rights, and social justice in West Africa. He also spent several years as a journalist at Gambia's leading news outlets. Alright, that's enough from me. Let's get into the action. Dr. Baba Jalo, thank you so much for joining Convergence today.
1: Uh, You're welcome, Ola Deji, and thank you for the opportunity to to chat with you.
0: Absolutely. So, Dr. Jalo, you've done so much in one lifetime. (laughs) That's honestly what I am always humbled by with you. From, From journalism to academia, and now to being in charge of Gambia's TRRC, and I did want to trace things back to your youth, actually, and maybe just ask what your life was like at 14 years old and the issues you cared about at this period in your, in your life.
1: Well, thanks a lot, My interesting question, Ola, Deji. <laughs> at 14 years old, I was, I was at school, of course, and um, I cared for three things. I cared for reading, I cared for watching Indian movies, <laughs> and I cared for writing short stories. Yeah, I didn't care for looking after the sheep, as my father would have me do. But <laughs> yes, those are the three things that I cared for most. Yeah. Reading, watching Indian movies, and writing short stories.
0: And so you mentioned taking care of the sheep. When you were 14, were you in a more rural part of the Gambia?
1: Yes. I was born in a rural town called Farafenye. Uh, it's about 200 kilometers from Banyul. And I was born and grew up there. I went to primary school there and to secondary school. And then I went to high school at Amity High School, which is further down, you know, the, the interior of the country.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm sure so much has changed since then. And I know that the things you're writing about has indeed changed. But at 14 years old, what were you what what topics were you exploring for reading and writing?
1: Well, for reading, I was exposed to the works of people like Simeon Usman. Yeah. Um, I remember his ghost bits of wood and a collection of stories that I really, really love called Tribal Scars. And Tribal Scars had a series of so stories in it. I was also exposed to the works of Kamara Lai, especially the Radiance of the King and the African Child. I read the works of Sahid Rider Haggard. King Solomon's Minds, as well as other books that he wrote. Uh, In terms of writing, uh, what I did was that I was fascinated with these Indian movies. So when I watched an Indian movie tonight, uh, tomorrow I would go and buy an exercise book, a notebook, and then I would try to adapt the story that I watched on the movie into a short story using African characters. So that is how I I managed to to adapt some of them into, into African short stories and also adapted some of the uh, stole, if you like, some of the, the ideas I read in S.M. Um, Usman and Kamaralai and others, and just adapted them into to my own small universe of Gambian yeah. literature. So that's, that's how beautiful. I started writing, and those are the things that I wrote about. The time. Yeah.
0: Well, it's beautiful that it, it sounds like you had a love for reading and writing from a young age, and now at this journey and, and point of your life, You've written so much. You've written so many books. Most recently you wrote, uh, I think just a couple of years ago, you wrote Defying Dictatorships, essays on Gambian politics from 2012 to 2017. And I guess I was also curious, with all of this writing experience you've had, dealing with really challenging, complex issues like women's rights, female genital mutilation, and all of these things. I I guess I was curious, of all the books you have written, which your favorite to write was, and which was the most challenging to write?
1: My favorite book to write was My Childhood Days, uh, Childhood Days in Chakubankan. That was just Published last year, it's a, it's a story, a kind of a recollection of my memories from childhood. That was kind of inspired by the fact that childhood days nowadays is very different from childhood days when I was a child. Then we wrestled in the sun, we went hunting, we did a lot of good things and not so good things. And so I thought, well, why not capture these memories and publish them in a book? And I really really enjoyed recalling the characters that I knew when I was a child. They were Lots of madmen and madwomen in Farafenia at the time. And uh, it was great fun kind of recalling some of the old men, the men we feared and the men we liked, and, and that kind of stuff. So also the, the, the fairy tales uh, or the folk tales that we heard from elders and some of the myths about graveyards, about snakes, naming snakes at night. So really, Childhood Days at Chakubantang was my favorite book to write. Chakubantang is just our name for... Farafine, where I was born. Ah, So, the most challenging book I wrote again was kind of autobiographical. It is The Graveyard Cannot Pray. Mm. Now, The Graveyard Cannot Pray is a true story of a very, very drawn out conflict I had with my dad, with my father, because he wanted to have my daughter circumcised, Mm. and I refused to have my daughter circumcised. And that conflict lasted for two years and it drew in the community of elders in, in Farafine It was a very, very complex uh, fight. I, I threatened to commit suicide if they circumcised my daughter and that saved her. She, she's alive and well um, now. Beautiful. you know, and Grown up, very happy that I protected her. Yeah. But talking about female circumcision, female genital mutilation for a man in my community, was a very very difficult subject and uh, especially writing about it putting it down and publishing what you wrote it was a dangerous enterprise i had a running with my with my dad and by extension with the with the fulani elders you know how fulani elders are very very strict yes <laughs> uh, but i fought the battle for her and i saved her from uh, female uh, genital mutilation hmm. and that was the most difficult experience i had in my life so far
0: yeah, yeah. And one thing I find yeah. so impressive with your writing is you're you're grappling with such difficult topics. It's illustrating a broader issue throughout West Africa, throughout Africa, throughout many parts of the world and it's still through your perspective. So there's a certain level of connection, greater connection. That the reader can have with your thoughts, since it's written from a more personal perspective, I really like that.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, most of the the, the books that I wrote, um, non-academic books like *The Graveyard Cannot Pray* and um, *And uh, Childhood Days in Chaco Bantan and others, are uh, from my own perspective. I, 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 they were all kind of, uh, you know, defiances or you know, acts of defiance against certain norms, I thought that there are certain things that should not happen. I questioned the rationale, for example, for female circumcision, and I challenged the elders who who, uh, tried to justify it by saying, you know, it is sunnah, like it's part of the prophet's example. And I said, no, the prophet had daughters and the daughters were not circumcised. Mm. So, yes, you know, I, I like to put things in perspective from my own point of view, but also affecting a wider community uh, not only of readers but just a wider community of human beings
0: yeah yeah and and there's a certain beauty in what you're sharing and how writing both from the writer's perspective writing and then from the reader's perspective reading can yeah. promote empathy can can kind of transcend a particular example and illustrate a broader, Rule, And I think your writing does that really well. So it's actually difficult to ignore that when you read your books. It's it's really difficult to ignore how your examples are touching on these really difficult human experiences. And so I know that some of the things you've been writing about have been kind of Countercultural, so it makes me wonder how you feel about issues around freedom of the press, since you both had experience as a journalist and then also as a as an author.
1: Oh yes, that is that is one of the the favorite issues that I had to deal with. Also, one of the issues that landed me in trouble over and over and over again with the former dictatorship that was here and that sent me into exile, uh, and before going to exile, that sent me to jail. Uh, <laughs> On a, on, a, on a number of occasions, I think freedom of expression is at the, at the center of, of human society, of human progress. If a society cannot say, cannot express its opinion on matters of public interest, then that society is in trouble. I, I, I just thought that whatever it takes, we have to prevent this country from sliding into conflict. The likes of the conflict in Sierra Leone and in mm-hmm. Liberia at the time. You know, they could only be saved by a very bold defiance against dictatorship, against muzzling of the press, against violation of human rights. And that, too, is a universal concern, uh, not yeah. just for, for Gambians, but for Africans and, and many other parts of the, the world. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and you've touched on this experience with dictatorship that Gambia had. Uh, So maybe to explore Gambian history, there there was this military coup in July 1994, and it was led by a group of people all aligned with the Armed Forces Provisional Ruling Council. And effectively, in July 1994, they, they successfully removed the president at the time from power, and a new head of state came into power as a result of the military coup. And that individual stayed in power until he lost elections in 2016. I I did want to zoom in on this moment in history, especially for Gambian history of July 1994, and ask you, I guess, where you were at this moment and and how you experienced the coup at the time.
1: Yes, on July 22nd, 1994, there was a coup. We just woke up to news of a coup. We actually woke up to soldiers uh, marching down the streets of Banjul to our state house. And within the next few hours, we knew that a group of young lieutenants had taken over the government. And that Sadawada Jawara, who was president of the Gambia for 30 years had fled into exile. You know, at the time, I was working as an assistant registrar at the West African Exams Council office here in Banjul. And I was in big trouble because I was writing for a newspaper. And I had been warned before by my boss at the time that if I didn't stop writing, I was going to be sad. I was going to lose my job. And I refused to stop writing. I said, I'm not writing on on West African Exams Council matters. I am not writing at work. I write at home in my free time, so I'm not going to stop writing. So a week after the coup, precisely I think it was on August 2nd, just one week, precisely one week after Friday, July 22nd, 1994, when the military took over, I got my marching orders. I was sacked from my job mm-hmm. for continuing to write for the Daily Observer. And so I went straight to the Daily Observer newspapers and saw the managing director at the time, the proprietor, actually, Kenneth Best, who was a Liberian refugee. And he just said, uh, come on Sunday and bring your application letter for assistant editor. So so that's how I I became a journalist. So I stayed in the Gambia from July 1994 to December 2000. And that was one of the periods of, of repression. On the the military, they had just started becoming very, very repressive. And in December 2000, I had to leave the country and come to the United States uh, as as a refugee because my life was in danger. But during that period, the the six years that I spent under the military regime, I was arrested But a lot of times they would just come to the daily Observer offices and, and pick me up and then go and lock me up for three, four days. Uh, no charges, no indication of why I was picked up. Sometimes, sometimes I was told that I was selling the country to the enemies. When I was kept in comunicado for days on end, and then I was released. Uh, so it was a very dangerous period, if you like, for me. I did not know how dangerous it was until much later. I realized that I might have been killed. I could have been killed in one of those arrests because the arrest happened. At all times of the day or night, they would come in the middle of the night and say, Come on, let's go, we need you. And then you would just have to go with them, no arrest warrants, nothing. And they would this would be plain, plain clothes men. And they would take me to the NIA offices, they would lock me up there for, for many days, and they would say, We don't know where he is. So it was a very dangerous period for me. And it was dangerous because anytime I was arrested and released. I would go and write an editorial that is even more hard-hitting than the editorial for which I was arrested. So, <laughs> uh, Because what happened was they deported Kenneth Best, uh, the proprietor, who was the editor-in-chief. A Ghanaian guy named uh, Ellicott, Mr. Ellicott, took over as editor-in-chief. A couple of months later, he was deported, and I was next in line, so I came directly to the line of fire as editor-in-chief. And then I continued getting arrested until they bought the Daily Observer. And then I left and started the independent newspaper. Again, the arrests and harassments continued until eventually they said I was not Gambian. They accused me of not being a Gambian. They went to my hometown and arrested my dad and my mom. I held them for one day, interrogated them, seized their ID cards. And then after that, they just couldn't sleep. They said you have to leave the country. And that's how I left the country and came to the U.S., and continued the struggle from the U.S. through the pen, through the writings. It was a very kind of critical period for me.
0: Yeah, well, just a fascinating story, and I find yeah. the experiences of people like you and other human rights activists that have truly experienced living under autocratic rule like you did, to I find all of that to be so powerful because you truly sacrifice You know, economic opportunities, right? You lost your job because of your thoughts. Your thoughts were punished and financially punished, right? And then you also had your physical well being punished by being imprisoned multiple times simply for your thoughts as well. So, and then you had other people, your loved ones, physically threatened and harmed. And your citizenship even called into question. So I find your experience, right, to illustrate this broader challenge that members of the press have to, in many parts of the world, throughout the world, have to grapple with the extent that you are going to write what you believe instead of essentially being co-opted by the institutions of power to stop your, your writing. It's not an easy decision, I imagine.
1: No, not at all. It wasn't an easy decision at all. But then it wasn't difficult either because hmm. I, I thought that I was doing the right thing. Um, I thought that we had to speak truth to, to power. I thought that the future of the country, the security of the country is at stake that if the dictatorship was allowed to proceed and do anything and everything in the country, that the country could slide into civil war. There was a civil war raging on in Sierra Leone. There was a civil war raging on in Liberia. And we are seeing refugees coming from there every day. We are hearing horror stories from Liberia and Sierra Leone. And I was just determined to to do what I could to prevent that kind of situation from happening in the country. And then when Kenneth Best was deported, he actually sold the newspaper and the government used a proxy to buy the newspaper. That's the Daily Observer of which I was editor-in-chief. And so when they bought the paper, they they called me into their office, the new managing director, and offered me a 100% salary increment. They offered me a car, a Benz. I've said this before in the Gambian media. And the guy who bought the paper, Amadou Samba, a very wealthy government businessman said, I will give you a house, I'll give you a car, and I'll give you a 100% salary increment for you to stay. But then there was a caveat. They, they, they wanted to sack my news editor, who at the time was Demba Jao, Demba Ali Jawa. He's a famous journalist here. And I said, why are you sacking him? Said, well, we are just restructuring the paper. But I knew that wasn't true. I knew the real reason Mr. Zhao was being sacked was that he ran a column called Focus. And Focus was a very hard-hitting column that criticized the military regime at the time. And so I said, if you sack him, I'm going to resign. And they sacked him on a Sunday. And on Monday, I tendered my resignation letter and then went ahead to start the independent newspaper. And that was seen as a challenge, as an affront to the authority of the military. And so they got more hostile and I got more punished. So <laughs> that, was, that was how it went. I couldn't, I couldn't let them buy me or quark me into doing things that were against my principles that would compromise my integrity as a journalist and as a Gambian. Yeah.
0: So, so when you leave the Daily Observer and start your independence journal what was your experience? You have greater autonomy. that No one can buy you out now. You don't work for people who have kind of like co-opted your prior journal. I guess now that you had this greater independence, how did that inform your work?
1: Well, I just continued exactly what I was doing at the Daily Observer because the Daily Observer, when I was the editor-in-chief, was a very fiercely independent newspaper. We had a very independent editorial policy. We wrote what we felt was right. We tried to be as objective as possible in reporting the news, and our editorials were unfailingly hard-hitting when it came to to dealing with issues of public concern. So that independent editorial policy is what I took away with me when uh, we started the independent newspaper, and it just continued. Like that. So essentially, the, the independence period of the observer was transferred to the independent newspaper. Yeah. And so the harassment just continued.
0: Unfortunate. Yeah, not an yeah. easy time, yeah. I imagine. You mentioned that you went into exile December 2000. And yes. when, when you left Gambia in December 2000, did you ever think you would return? And under what circumstances did you think you would return if you did? <sighs>
1: No, the idea of returning home was very remote in my consciousness. I mean, I didn't know when I was going to come back home um, because uh, there was this dictatorship. The president was young. um, He had already retired from the military and decided to stand for elections, which he won in 1996 and again in 2000. And I knew that he was going to continue winning elections. And uh, this was a guy who would boast that he would be in power for one billion years if he wanted to. And so it was a very bleak prospect when I yeah. thought about coming home. It was a very, very difficult situation. My family was here, my parents were here. I actually, both my parents passed away while I was in exile, and I couldn't come back to Gambia
0: to I'm so sorry, to, to
1: attend their funerals. So I came back several years later. My mom passed away in 2006. That was six years after I left. My dad passed away in 2009, nine Mm -hmm. years after I left the country. And I was Mm -hmm. only able to come back in 2017. So Mm -hmm. you can imagine how difficult that was. But then I wasn't going to compromise on the work for which I was exiled. And so I continued writing essays against the military regime, the dictatorship there. And those are the essays that I compiled into a book called Defying Dictatorship," the one that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, was a, it was a very, very, very difficult situation for me. Um, I wanted to come home. I did all my doctoral research in Ghana because I couldn't come to Gambia. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. And so, yeah, not an easy time at all. And so you make this return in 2017 and... Things had changed in Gambia pretty dramatically at that moment. Could you talk a bit about what changed in 2017 when you made the return?
1: It was a different society. I mean, I I couldn't recognize a lot of the things that I saw Uh, culturally. I had phrases being used that I never knew about before. Mm. And the country had really changed. I was a stranger at home because I was away for 17 years. Wow. Um, but then there was a spirit of democracy that could not have been imagined under the dictatorship. People were free. People were saying what they wanted to say. They were criticizing the government that was in place. And there was a spirit of hope that there is a new Gambia. Actually, there was the term coined the new Gambia back in 2017, 2018. We are very optimistic that the Gambia has been freed or has freed ourselves from the approaches of a very brutal dictatorship, and that now we are going to create a new and vibrant democracy, a new and vibrant society that everyone would be happy about. So that, that was the situation. It was a very jubilant situation, if you want, a very hopeful mood across the country.
0: Yeah, and, and at yes. some points, you also got an invitation to take on the role that you currently have with Gambia's TRC as the Executive Secretary, could you talk a bit about how that came into fruition and any concerns or hopes that you had once, once you had accepted that opportunity?
1: Yes, at the time in 2017, I was teaching at La Salle University at Philadelphia. So in the summer, when, when the dictatorship fell in December 2016, in the summer of 2017, I came for a vacation here at home, and I had a very brief conversation. I ran into the justice minister, who I knew, about right. Tambedu, and he said, I need to talk to you about something. I did not know what. And then when I went back after my, the summer vacation here for the first time in 17 years, yeah. uh, one day he gave me a call. I was, I was in, in Philadelphia, he gave me a call, and he said, Baba, uh, we are going to set up this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've looked around in Gambian academia, and we thought that you might be a perfect candidate to come and help us out with the role of executive secretary, come help us set up the commission and head the secretary of the commission. And I wonder if you would be interested in this. And I did not hesitate at all. I said, yes, I would be interested in that. So uh, he sent me a formal invitation. I asked him to write to the history department, my department at La Salle, which he did and copied me. And so I was able to secure a two-year leave of absence from La Salle to come and take up this position, because the, the idea was to finish the work of the commission in two years. Uh, unfortunately, the commission did not end in two years. It took longer than we anticipated. Yeah. And so I had to request for an extension of my leave of absence. Unfortunately, or fortunately, one way or the other, it wasn't approved. And I can understand yeah. they needed to move ahead. They needed to get a full-time history professor at LaSalle. And so I had to resign my job at LaSalle. And I stayed on to, to assist with ending the work here. And I don't regret it uh, one bit. Yeah. So That's how I came home and uh, I worked with the ministry of justice and we set up the commission and then the rest, as they say, is not history yet, but it's becoming history. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and I can only imagine with your university, yeah. I mean, you, you have been someone to stand up for what you believe in, right? Going back to your days yes. as a journalist. And I can imagine when you were presented with this choice between continuing with the trc or returning back to philadelphia I can imagine there's a younger you going back to the daily observer days who was like i i already know what i need to do which is which is stay and and fulfill this this objective in line with the hopes that i have for the future of of this country
1: Absolutely so, absolutely. There was no doubt at all in my mind what I would do if my request for an extension was denied. But I could understand too, I mean, I, I couldn't blame LaSalle for wanting to hire a full-time history professor. But at the same time, it was kind of inconceivable that I would drop the job in the middle of the process and then head back to to work on my tenure. I, I was I was being reviewed for tenure and promotion at the time that I left. So yeah. actually, the, the following winter or the following spring semester was the, the semester that I was going to be off for tenure. Mm. Um, but I, I just couldn't drop the ball at the time. I thought, you know, whatever happens, I need to stay here. Uh, even if I have to lose my job and get back on the job market afterwards, I would have to lose my job. I have to complete this work because I believed in what we are doing. I believe in what we are doing, and I believe that it serves a very, very, big purpose and a very positive purpose too in the future of this country.
0: Yeah, I was I was really fortunate to be involved with the TRC in early 2019 and for me it was just truly inspiring because you have such transparency in the truth and reconciliation parts. So, I remember going down to your offices and sitting just a couple feet away from former military officials who had committed these harms under the prior administration. And then also just right. being a few feet away from people who had endured torture and other harms, like, like you have experienced, uh, financial and right. physical loss. So I, I thought that the TRC then was just a harrowing experience for me to witness it all. And, and so I guess, With aspirations that you had around the TRC, what were those aspirations? And now that you're nearing the end of the mandates, have those aspirations come into fruition?
1: Yes, some of them have. Some of them have not yet happened because the the mandate of the commission was to kind of investigate 22 years of human rights abuses and violations, and then to come up with recommendations for institutional reform, recommendations for prosecution of those most responsible for human rights violations, and then uh, hand, it, hand those over to the government and have those implemented after the TRRC. Now, one of the, the things that have happened as a result of the work of the Commission is that a lot of Gambians, especially young Gambians, especially civil society organizations and victims organizations, have come to adopt one of the slogans one of the campaigns that we launched with this slogan the Never Again Campaign, and uh, they have been kind of socialized into hating dictatorship, into insisting on having their rights respected, into preventing a recurrence of dictatorship here. And so that has happened. Also, a lot of the victims have been helped through our interim reparations program. We have lots of victims who are very sick. We managed to take some of them to Dakar, some of them to Turkey. For medical treatment, some of those victims are healthy now. So, but when it comes to the recommendations that we are going to present to the government, maybe uh, within the, within this month, hopefully, those are yet to be to be given to the government, and they would include, of course, recommendations for the prosecution of people who were found to be most responsible for human rights violations but also recommendations for institutional reform, policy reform, administrative reform, all of which would help in preventing a recurrence of the kind of decadent system that existed here under the dictatorship. So some of the objectives have been achieved already, some of them not yet.
0: It's, It's beautiful, and I guess you're dealing with such complex issues that have been in place And that Gambian society has experienced for more than two decades. So I imagine that just a couple of years, it's it's not easy to unwind all the psychological harm that the country has experienced during such a long time period. And, And you also mentioned the civil society engagement with the Never Again campaign. So I guess with the Never Again campaign, What is, what has been the TRC's role in collaborating with civil society organizations for that? And how does one entrench a spirit of democracy in the midst of uncertainty for the general population? Not an easy question.
1: (laughs) Not an easy question and wasn't an easy process either. Yeah. Uh, because what, what we did with the, with the TRRC is having started it, having looked at uh, past truth commissions. you know, about 44 of them uh, as of uh, 2017 that I knew about, you know, read a lot online, read uh, some books here and there, some papers. We identified some problems that afflicted some of the, the truth commissions that passed. And one of the biggest problems with those was the lack of inclusivity of the populations of the people of the country in which the Truth Commission was operating. So what we did with the TRRC was to make sure that we adopted two parallel approaches. One was the traditional approach of uh, Truth Commission hearings, public hearings that were held at the hall, the big hall that you saw. But the other was uh, outreach activities. Now, in order to be able to do outreach activities to reach to all sectors of the Gambian population, we designed the secretariat in such a way that we would have different units or different departments of the secretariat that were dedicated to a particular target populations. For example, we had a women's affairs unit whose role was really to go out there and engage the women and make sure that gender issues and women's issues were kind of centered, prioritized in the work of the commission. Uh, the other unit we had was a youth and children's network unit And the Youth and Children's Network Unit had the role of bringing in or involving, including young people across the board. So they visited about 60 schools across the country, spoke to over 60,000 students, but also visited the ghettos and they visited unemployed youth and they spoke to young people about what happened here. You know, why did we have a dictatorship? What are the effects of a dictatorship in this country? And how could they prevent a recurrence of a dictatorship in this country? Same thing happened with the Women's Affairs unit. We had a reconciliation unit that worked on reconciliation. We had a communications and outreach unit that assisted them. And then we had another unit that was kind of focused on working with the victims, the victim support unit, that was kind of the, the interface between the commission and the victim community. So essentially the outreach activities were designed to encourage people to come forward. Both perpetrators, but especially victims, especially women's victims and you know child victims that existed, to come forward and share their stories with the commission, but also to empower them, to tell them that power resides in the people, in you. The power does not reside in the government. So essentially, in a way, the TRC process was a subversive of flying obedience to authority. You know, we, we thought that was one of the main problems that, that enabled the dictatorship in the past. And we addressed those issues in the outreach activities. So we are able to socialize a lot of people, a lot of young people, we are able to collaborate with, the, with civil society organizations and victim organizations. When we went out for outreach activities, we organized some of these outreach activities jointly with the victim center, with the ICTJ, that has an office here, the International Center for Transitional Justice and other organizations. So essentially, we just spoke to the people about what happened here, why did it happen, how can you prevent it from happening again? And in that way, we were able to kind of infuse the idea of never again and some level of defiance against dictatorship and human rights violations in the population, and it worked.
0: Well, I, I've mentioned it before. So when I was when I was in the Gambia, I, I'll never forget taking taxis between the Ministry of Justice and the location of the Truth Commission. And on multiple occasions, my taxi drivers would have the hearings of the Truth Commission being played on their radios. And it was just really beautiful to see yep. all levels of Gambian society following and tracking all that's going on with the Truth Commission because there is so much that goes on. So I found that really beautiful. And from what you're sharing, I'm hearing that you were very deliberate in creating systems that would broaden stakeholder engagement and that would also empower them, which I think is really powerful, especially if you want like a long-term, not just four years, but a long-term cultivated spirit in the people to prevent historical unfortunate circumstances from repeating. So I did did want to focus in on that piece around broadening engagement and empowering stakeholders because the, the podcast is all about technology and dispute systems. And truth commissions are such a powerful, transformative, and as you put it, subversive tool that can be used to transcend historical harms. So when you were thinking about designing your truth commission, how did you think about the role of technology?
1: We, we were very fortunate to, to have the TRRC in the age of social media. And, you know, we were determined to make sure that we use technology to achieve some of the the main objectives of the commission. And this included inclusivity to make sure that both within the institution of the the truth commission and outside nationally and internationally, there is an element of inclusivity. We wanted everyone to be included in the process, to be involved in the process one way or the other. Um, Secondly, we wanted we wanted the process to be completely transparent, that everyone knows exactly what is going on so that no one will come tomorrow and say the evidence was cooked or this, uh, this witness was quacks to say what they did not want to say, etc. We wanted the process to be credible. That credibility was on top of our, our agenda and we wanted the process to be efficient. Now, technology allowed us literally to, to do all of these things, to achieve all of these objectives in one way or the other. Now, in terms of inclusivity, we are able to, to get a media partner, QTV. I'm um, sure so you saw the obi van when you came there, a big truck standing in the middle of the compound. Absolutely, um, can't miss it. <laughs> yes, we contracted QTV because we had different offers from different or bids from different media organizations, but we went for QTV because QTV is a satellite TV station. It has worldwide reach, you know, people in Russia, people in the US, people everywhere can tune into QTV and watch. And so even though it was a bit expensive on on our part, we we just went with it so that everyone could follow outside of the country. They also have online media platforms. They have a YouTube page, the YouTube channel, they have a, a Facebook page and you could go there.
0: Could I just say how beautiful your the YouTube channel is? Because even after yep. I left Gambia, I was able to right. follow every single hearing via YouTube live, right? That that's it's just yes. so beautiful and, and unique because Gambia is one of the newest countries to have a truth commission. It was beautiful to see. You know, in 1995, South Africa, when they were launching their truth commission, YouTube wasn't a thing. So that wasn't an option. But today, YouTube is something that really transcends borders in a powerful way. So I I was able to really learn so much from those hearings, even when I was away from the Gambia.
1: Absolutely. So that was one of the ideas, too, to make sure that the hearings, everything that happened in that hall is preserved in the form of videos and in the form of audio recordings. And we had all of those. We, we we are able to, we gave open access to the media. So newspapers came, radio stations came to cover the hearings. Um, online media came to cover the hearings. So that everyone would have access to, to the hearings of the commission. You know, we also used technology in interpretation. We, we made sure so that we had a very, very well-equipped interpretation booth that had uh, interpreters, uh, professional interpreters of English to the local languages. We had at least five of the major languages here, so that every witness who comes, whether it's a victim or a perpetrator, if they wanted to speak in any language, we would have an interpreter who was able to interpret what he was saying, or she was saying from English to the, the local language. And so that was made possible by technology. We also had a transcribing team, a transcribing unit that transcribed all the hearings from the audio to text. And that too was made possible by technology. So essentially, technology drove the process in very, very significant ways. And it enabled us to make the process as inclusive as possible, as transparent as possible, as credible as possible, and as efficient as possible. The other thing that I thought was a very, very useful contribution of technology to the Truth Commission process here is that we are able to have witnesses who are in the diaspora. We had witnesses from from America, you know, witnesses from the UK, witnesses from other parts of Africa actually testifying live via video link. And so that was very useful. So we are able to have about 40, 40 of, of our witnesses, mostly some of them perpetrators, some of them victims we are outside the country who could not come here but who we are nevertheless able to testify before the commission and that was made possible by technology
0: yeah i i think what you're sharing is so fascinating and one of the reasons why i find it fascinating is because the truth commission started before the pandemic and it has existed yeah. overlapping with the pandemic and in in other branches of alternative dispute resolution like mediation and arbitration, greater use of technology like remote hearings and remote processes only really started becoming widely accepted by professionals in the field because of the pandemic and like health and safety protocols they had to follow. But you're illustrating that because you did this before the pandemic, you're illustrating Mm -hmm. that the value of technology for resolving disputes on a, on a national level is noteworthy. And so I guess one thing I'm wondering is since the start of the pandemic, how, how the Truth Commission has actually changed, if at all?
1: One of the things that happened during the pandemic was that we, we had to suspend hearing for some time and then that wasn't quite feasible. And so we had to, Think of ways of having social distancing of the commissioners and the witnesses inside the hall. We limited the number of journalists who could could come into the hall to cover the hearings. And we eliminated the free access, open access to the public. So people could no longer come and sit in the audience and watch, which happened before the pandemic. But nevertheless, we are able to continue the hearings and thanks to technology, we are able to really move the process without much hitches. Uh, you know, the process just went on. People stayed at home or in their cars or used their phones to watch on YouTube and Facebook. And the process just continued as it was almost before before the pandemic happened. And that was yeah. only made possible because we, we had YouTube, we had radios, we had Facebook, we had online media platforms covering the hearings, and we had QTV and Gambia Radio and Television Services also covering the hearings. So essentially, we just observed the, the safety measures that were put in place by the government, by the World Health Organization, and by the health authorities here, and then we continued with the hearings. Because if you wanted to wait until the pandemic was over before <laughs> we could continue, then we would be here for the next 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so we, don't want, yeah. we didn't want that to happen.
0: Yeah, well, I I think you were a step ahead of the pandemic because you already had the technology in place even before anyone had thought of coronavirus coming into existence. And so I imagine that once that switch was required to, for health and safety reasons, that it wasn't all that much of a difficult switch because you already had the recordings going on, you had the radios, uh, transmissions going on. And so it wasn't like you had to reinvent things drastically.
1: No, not at all. Um, The hearing started in January 2019, January 7th, 2019 to be precise. And the pandemic just hit very hard here late 2019 and early 2020 so no we did not have to to change anything like I said all we needed to do was to reduce the number of cameramen and journalists so if two or three journalists represented a media house before the pandemic now we would insist that only one person if possible you know at most two people would, would represent a particular media house so we reduced the number of people number of journalists but then the number of media stayed. And all the other arrangements, technological arrangements remained in place. And we did not have to change anything. All we did was the social distancing and also to stop people from coming in and sitting in on the hearings. That -hmm. was really the major change. So people could not just walk into the TRRC promises with their ID, uh, swayed at the door and then go sit in the hall. So that changed. But other than that, everything just went on as before.
0: And as you've mentioned earlier, integrating so much technology into the system design is, is powerful for posterity, right? You have right. all these transcripts, you have all of these videos. They yes. are, they are on the internet, freely accessible. Anyone can have access to them. And it, it is much more difficult to corrupt those videos, to corrupt those, those transcripts, because they're already widely distributed. So if there were bad actors in the future, they would have to operate under a system where people already know their history.
1: Exactly yeah. so. Exactly so. I mean, we are happy that everything that the troop commission did in terms of public hearings, in terms of side visits and other public occasions or events are all online. So you can't really deny anything because we've had occasions in truth commissions where where people would deny that this human rights violation happened or that you know the truth commission cooked up the evidence you can't say that here you know of course there are still people who say no human rights violation was was committed in the Gambia but but then the evidence is so overwhelming that people people just don't listen to those kinds of denials So yeah. the technology enabled us both to preserve the material for posterity, And also to transcribe and have hard copies, because we have hard copies of all of the public hearings. We have Mm -hmm. actually books. We publish them into books, and those Mm -hmm. are lying down. So those would be in the library at the archives. You could pick up a hard copy of all the transcripts for November 11, 1994, or July 22, 1994, and read So not only do we have them online, we also have them in hard copies. They were transcribed, they were laid out, they were printed out, and we have copies of volumes of all of the transcripts, all of the hearings that that happened at the Truth Commission.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful. And I guess in terms of learning lessons, you mentioned that the commission is in its final stages. Maybe it has one month or so left. And... I guess I was curious, looking back on this Mm -hmm. experience, lessons you've learned or things you would have done differently with the knowledge you have now.
1: Well, I'm not sure I would have done anything differently, personally, at the level of the commission. I think that the composition of the commission could have been better thought out because at the time of the selection, nomination and selection of the commissioners, The government's major interest was in reconciling the country and so commissioners were nominated by the communities and they were vetted for integrity and so on but i think that they would have done a better job if you like of selecting commissioners that that said the commissioners of the truth commission did very well they all worked together very closely they are all men and women of integrity they did a wonderful job of the commission also I think in terms of the funding for the commission, we have had to struggle for funds from quarter to quarter because our funds are allocated quarterly. So I've had to Mm. like fight, tooth, nail, and claw to get funding from the government. I think making a budgetary allocation for the truth commission would have been very helpful. One lump sum, give it to the commission, let it do its work. But that has been a challenge that I think I would have advised the government to just make a budgetary allocation and give the monies to the commission. Um, other than that, I'm not sure I would have done a lot of things differently than we have done so far.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that's, it's good that so much has gone well. That's a good sign. Yeah. And I, I imagine with the quarterly budget allocation that since it's been in existence for multiple years, you might have had challenges in in anticipating what the future holds because you can only forecast one quarter of budget allocations
1: right right you have to you have to send in a request every quarter and then you know bureaucratic red tape, of course, you know, it's everywhere, especially in Africa. Yep. Um, it, it's like it's like uh, milking you know milking a rock for water. Uh, you know, it, uh, at some point, I've had occasions where I had to write to the Minister of Justice, both the former Minister Bartembero and this Minister, and write to them and say, if you don't have our monies by the end of next month, we wouldn't be able to pay salaries, and if we are not able to pay salaries, we're going to shut down the commission. I've had to do that over and over again. I've had, I've, I have emails with me that I sent, and that was helpful because anytime the idea of closing down the commission came up, it would work. The, they would work quickly and, and get some funds and give us the money that we need. But then also they never gave us the monies that we requested. So if you requested, mm-hmm. let's say, for 15000 they probably would give us 10000 um, mm-hmm. know That's how it worked uh, throughout. And so I think that is one area that that needs to be looked at. If a country is setting up a truth commission, they really have to think very, very hard about uh, the budgetary allocation. It's a very expensive process. You have to pay salaries for about 100 people or more. You have to pay overheads, the technology, you have to finance everything. So it's a very, very expensive process. And it would be very helpful if uh, any government that wants to set up a truth commission thinks very long and hard about how do we form this process. If it were not for the support of the United Nations Peacebuilding Support Office, uh, I'm not sure the Gambia government alone could have formed this commission properly. That I can tell you.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking back to, I think it was Sierra Leone's Truth Commission that
1: yeah.
0: had Budgetary challenges. And even though it was like really well designed and the intention was 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 there to be very effective, limited budgetary allocations kind of hindered its ability to be as as transformative as as it could have been, perhaps. So so I, I do think that's an important lesson for future truth commissions. How the duration of the budgetary allocations and the amount of the allocation itself necessarily impacts the effectiveness or the the scope that the commission can engage with.
1: That's right, it does. It does affect um, the work of the commission. Uh, Fortunately, uh, like I said, we had to fight, but we always got enough money to make sure that all the operations of the commission proceeded smoothly. We never had to stop because of lack of money, lack of funds. So we are grateful for that, but then it was a constant struggle. It was a headache. It was very stressful. Sometimes just having to run around and and run after the government. You know how difficult it is to get money from the government. You know, so you know uh, we had to resort to to threats of of closing down the commission before they would yeah. give us money. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I think it would be very helpful if a government wants to set up a truth commission that they have enough money because it's a very expensive process. And sometimes, most times, it would go beyond the initial period that was that was anticipated. For example, the TRC was anticipated to last for two years. Now we are we just finished the third year, and we are just at the tail end of the process now.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to ask maybe one of my final questions. We've talked a bit about the challenges and and truly the transformative. Nature of the Truth Commission, especially in how it uses technology to increase access and empower individuals. I guess looking into the future, what are your predictions on the impact, the long-term impacts that your commission will have had in Gambian society?
1: Great question. I think I think one of the one of the impacts that we had and that is going to stick because one of the things that we wanted to do was to transform the political culture uh, of the country, the political mindset, to to change the way uh, people perceive their governments, to change the way people see themselves vis-a-vis the government, to change the way that the nation and the state are interrelated. What is the, the role of the government? What are the limits of the powers of the government? And I think we have succeeded to some extent in kind of infusing that spirit of uh, awareness uh, in a lot of Gambians, especially young Gambians. Because like I said, we had, we had this unit called the Youth and Children's Network Unit uh, composed of young university students, very bright students, poets, you know, and they went out and they spoke to uh, students across the country and young people across the country. So I think the knowledge that you know they have about their role as young people and as citizens of the country, vis-a-vis the role of the government, the limits of government authority, I think that knowledge will stay on, they will grow up with it, and they will continue to insist on holding the government accountable. I I think that is going to stay long term. So the never again spirit is already infused across the country, uh, especially in the CSO community. Uh, If you remember recently I sent you a photo or something of uh, CSOs coming together in to yes. March for the implementation of the recommendations of the Truth Commission, even though yes. the recommendations haven't come out yet. Yeah. But they have sensed some, 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 some uncertainty you know, in terms of uh, government's readiness to implement the recommendations, and they decided to hold a march in support of the victims and in support of the idea of implementing the recommendations. I think that is going to continue. It's already a cultural issue going to continue. Also, CSOs and victims organizations and young people across the country are going to make sure that they will hold their governments accountable. And that is a long-term issue. It's not, it's not ending now. So whatever government comes in the future, they would have to deal with uh, a popular mindset, a political culture that is uh, a bit transformed, not entirely transformed, but certainly transformed enough to and so that we do not have a dictatorship in this country again. Yeah. And so that is a very very good result of the work of the TRRC.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting and yeah. Yeah, the the transformation is is a long-term initiative that you have kind of equipped and empowered civil society to be able to think about in a strategic way. So I think that's also right. really powerful. And I have one final question. And and so in in America, you're currently in Gambia. I'm currently in Boston. And right now in multiple cities in America, Boston, San Francisco, Philadelphia, and I think Minneapolis is also considering and doing investigations into creating their own local Truth and Reconciliation Commission in response to... Racial inequities in their respective cities and in the country generally. Now, America has had uh, truth commissions in the past, but they have had, I would say, very limited success. And so, right. since since you've done so much research and you've also done, you've you've put your your thoughts on paper and also been in charge of the truth commission, I was wondering if you. Had any recommendations, tips, even that you could give some of these truth commissions that are that are being created as we speak?
1: Well, yeah, I mean it's very exciting to hear that truth commissions are being set up uh, in cities across the, the U.S. Yes, I think one of the things that that I would say to any city or country that wants to set up a truth commission is that they have to make the process as inclusive. As possible and that inclusivity uh, is at two levels first you have to make sure that as an institution the truth commission work is inclusive so you don't just have a group of commissioners doing everything that is required to be done doing the research investigations doing the, the questioning and the listening uh, to, to the hearings and everything so you should have a well-equipped secretariat uh, for a start, the secretariat that is there, not just as a support mechanism, but as an active participant in the process. Now, that is at the level of the, the institution. Also, of course, you know, use as much technology. There is no lack of technology in the United States, so that should not be a, a big challenge. Uh, use technology as much as possible. Uh, make the process very, very inclusive. Make it transparent so that everyone who is interested in the process to be able to access um, the proceedings of the process and know exactly what, what's going on. Um, you know, I think if you make it inclusive and transparent, then ultimately the process would be credible because it's very easy for uh, for people, uh, whether they are victims or non-victims, or even alleged perpetrators, to come around and say, I wasn't given a fair hearing or you know, the, the evidence was cooked. So if you make it transparent and inclusive, uh, there would be no way that anyone can come out and say, this is not true, or I did not do that, or um, I was quacks to say this or that. So essentially those would be two things that people or the cities should keep in mind, make the process inclusive at the institutional level, make it inclusive at the state level, at the the city level first, at the state level, and at the national level if necessary so that everyone who is interested in what's going on in the Truth Commission in Philadelphia or somewhere else should be able to access the hearings as they happen. That is possible. And and so also make it transparent so that everyone knows exactly what's going on. If you do that, then you are going to have a credible process and whatever results would come out of your Truth Commission process cannot be questioned. There would be credible results, there would be credible recommendations that you can give Because all of the recommendations of a truth commission should come from the evidence, not from the opinions of the commissioners or the opinions of the victims or the perpetrators, the witnesses. So the evidence should be out there for everyone to see and to know that this is exactly what happened. That probably would be uh, a tip that uh, I I would want to share with with these cities, that want to uh, perform truth commissions. It should be a well-thought-out process. They should not rush into it. Take their time to plan very carefully to make sure that once it starts, it ends successfully.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well, yeah. Dr. Jialo, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing your life story, which I find to be remarkable. And thanks for being involved in the conversation. It's, it's, been, it's been a fun conversation.